the Psalms were originally written as responses of worshipers to God, but isn't it awesome that they were later, they were recognized as also God's word to us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Word Processing's Cover to Cover series, in which our goal is to move through all 66 books of the Bible, one by one, in order to not only better understand them individually, but also to better understand how they fit together as a cohesive and inspired whole. We continue this series today in the book of Psalms, one of the most well-read and highly cherished books of the Bible. And to help us understand it a bit better, we welcome to the podcast Dr. Ian Valencourt. Dr. Valencourt serves as Associate Professor of Old Testament and Hebrew at Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. He's an ordained pastor in the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptists in Canada and has served in senior and teaching pastoral roles for 14 years before transitioning to the classroom full-time. His passion, wherever he is, is to exalt Christ from the Old Testament, and we're excited to let him do that now. Well, Dr. Valencourt, welcome to the podcast. It's good to have you. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. Oh, it's an honor to be asked. Thank you so much, Josiah. Well, as I said, we're going to be looking at the Psalms today, and that's a big book, but I'm wondering if we can start by having you summarize this giant book for us. Maybe it's an impossible task, but how would you say that uh, we can get the whole thing into one statement? What's it about in total? Okay, I'm going to do three statements, okay? Sure. And three different angles. Wait, what are you going to do, argue? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. No, I'm going to do three statements, and I, I think they're complementary. In the Hebrew Old Testament, if we if we look at the title of the book of Psalms, it's Tehillim. And Tehillim is a Hebrew word that means it's it's related to hallelujah and it means praises. And so if I want to summarize what is the book of Psalms, it's a book of praises. It's the a book that has shaped the singing and the praying and the theology of God's people for thousands of years. Mm the book of praises. So whatever Psalm we're looking at, whether it's, you know, David in the depths or David in the heights mm -hmm. or celebrating the King or the, these different kinds of Psalms, they're all under this umbrella, according to the Hebrew uh, old Testament of praises. So I find that a helpful kind mm -hmm. of title. Yep. We're going to go to the reformers next and Martin Luther, one of the most quotable uh, Christians in history, in my view, but uh, Luther called it a little Bible. And when he thought about the book of Psalms, if he wanted to summarize it, he said, it's a little Bible. And here's the exact quote. He said, it might well be called a little Bible. In it is comprehended most beautifully and briefly everything that is in the entire Bible. In fact, I have a notion that the Holy Spirit wanted to take the trouble himself to compile a short Bible and book of examples of all Christendom or all saints so that anyone who could not read the whole Bible would here have anyway almost an entire summary of it comprised in one little book. Now, the reason I want to draw our attention to the Psalms as a little Bible, like you think of this is the songbook of Israel. And what characterized their singing? Well, what characterized their singing was robust theology, so much so that if you compile all the hymns of um, Israel into one, into 150, uh, not all the, the, there are other Psalms than this, but these are the ones that are recognized as inspired and inerrant and part of the book, right? But if you compile all these, 
you've got a little Bible, you've got a summary of the entire Bible. And I think that's instructive for worship leaders today that, you know, singing the same line a um, hundred times in a row is kind of maybe a little different than the Psalms approach to what robust singing is. Mm-hmm. So anyway, little Bible, it's a book of praises. It's a little Bible. And the third one I'm going to go to is John Calvin and John Calvin, uh, the great reformer, probably best known for, you know, the doctrine of predestination. But I, I think that's a shame that that's what he's primarily known for in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, uh, the Instruction on the Christian Religion, his two-volume Systematic Theology, he wrote more about prayer than about predestination. And Calvin was a wonderful Bible commentator. And here's what he wrote about the Psalms. They were, I'll, I'll, I'll summarize it first, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. Hmm. And so Calvin wrote this to quote him, the varied and resplendent riches which are contained in this treasury, it is no easy matter to express in words. I've been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life of all the griefs sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men and women are wont to be agitated in a word, whatever may serve to encourage us when we are about to pray to God is taught us in this book. So there you have it. The Psalms are a book of praises. They're a little Bible. They're an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. One last thing I'll say is the Psalms were originally written as responses of worshipers to God, but isn't it awesome that they were later, they were recognized as also God's word to us, that they were recognized as inerrant um, Holy scripture. Mm -hmm. So that's a long answer to a short question, Josiah. And I bet you it could have been longer. (laughs) Oh, I can talk. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. And that only whets our appetite to get into this book even more. Like if it is those things at the very least, this is a book worth studying and worth considering. I mean, it's scripture, so it is automatically, but what you've just said, it is so relatable in that it is that uh, window to the soul, like Calvin would say, that it is every emotion we could ever think of is reflected in this book somewhere. It's very relatable. Yeah. So as we come to the Psalter, as a reader, if I come to it in my Bible reading plan and I start going through the Psalms, variety becomes pretty apparent pretty quickly. They're not all the same. And you've already alluded to this. There are different types of Psalms. I wonder if you could give us a brief breakdown of the types of Psalms that there are to to look out for as we read through them. And then maybe their respective purposes. Why are there these different types of Psalms? Well, in keeping with the anatomy of all the parts of the soul, Calvin, the Psalms, there are Psalms for every occasion, for every season of the soul as one book titled itself. And about a third of the Psalms might be classed as lament. And by the way, I I think it's helpful to talk about the theme of lament in the Psalms and not just say, okay, here's what every lament Psalm has to have. And if it doesn't have all of it, it's, it's not a lament Psalm. But no, as we read the book of Psalms, we can see a dominant theme of lament in about 50, roughly speaking, out of 150 Psalms. 
And so isn't it awesome that, that this little Bible, this book of praises, this anatomy of all the parts of the soul recognizes that for God's people, life in a fallen world is not only just going to sometimes be difficult, but is going to often be difficult. And what the lament Psalms do is they teach us how to ache in faith. Hmm. And so if you look at the structure that generally kind of we see in lament Psalms, you've got this right of entry attitude to God. The psalmist isn't kind of polite. I, I remember one season of my, my own personal devotions, my Bible reading prayer in the morning. I remember I would read a line from the Psalms and then I'd pray it back to God in my own words. And I would get to a line that you see like, God, why do you stand far off? And I'd like sanitize it with bleach, man. Like I, I, I'd respond something like, God, I know you're always with me, but sometimes it feels like you're far off. And then I realize I'm not praying like the psalmist. There's this direct right of entry that you're my father and life is not going well. Come hear my prayer. And then there's this use of the the divine name Yahweh. I think it's 694 times in the book of Psalms Mm. that the personal name of God is used. And these psalmists used his personal name in addressing him. And, you know, in saying, oh, Yahweh, where are you? They're saying, you are my personal covenant God who's committed himself to me in covenant. I am your child. Where are you? So they're not being rude or cheeky. Mm-hmm. But there's this direct access attitude. And then in the lament Psalms, you see them move then to just unburden themselves. Here's what's going on in my life. And these people are not stuck in traffic. They're not, you know, these are not G-rated difficulties. These are real hard things in life. And the psalmist, you know, David, Psalm 3, my son is trying to murder me. Oh God, where are you? Come help. And it's just this unburdening himself toward the Lord, but he's, he aches and he expresses it. The Lord knows our hearts and this expressing, here's what's going on, Lord. And then there's a shift in all but one lament Psalm where, but you, O Yahweh are, and the Psalmist recounts, here's who you are for me. And then And this is key. By the end of the psalm, the life situation of the psalmist hasn't changed. Nothing about his external circumstances have changed, but he's trusting the Lord. He's trusting Yahweh. The the psalm has kind of brought him up to trust in Yahweh in the midst of his life situation. There's this, there's a section of a lot of lament psalms where he recounts, here's who you are for me. Here's your character and here's how you act toward me. Now I'm going to anticipate you are going to be faithful. So the Psalms don't, the Psalms might start with this, what may be mistaken for cheeky boldness, which is it is not. And the Psalms may start with aching and just pouring out, but they don't end there, the lament Psalms. So that's probably my favorite because we live in a fallen world, don't we? And we sin against other people. And other people sin against us. 
and creation in general just doesn't work. We have global pandemics, like there's all kinds of stuff going on. And, and, you know, two different of my friends lost, lost their son, two different people. I know personally, their son passed away in the last four months and the lament Psalms are precious to us, aren't they? Mm-hmm. So that's the one I'll talk most about, but we've got Thanksgiving Psalms and in the Thanksgiving Psalms. So an example of lament is Psalm three, mm-hmm. Psalm Thanksgiving Psalm, an example would be Psalm 118. And in the Thanksgiving Psalm, the Psalmist looks back on a time of desperation and then looks back on deliverance that Yahweh has brought to them and draws a line from that deliverance to his covenant God. And so a Thanksgiving Psalm is looking back on deliverance and a lot of the lament Psalms will have this vow. I will, I will worship you when you deliver me. Well, the Thanksgiving Psalm saying I'm worshiping you because you've delivered me. Mm -hmm. And then another kind of Psalm that's really prevalent in the book of Psalms is, is praise Psalms. And I've already said there's all of them could be categorized as there. It's a book of praises, but, but there's a, there's a specific kind of psalm that's you think of Psalm 150, that's Godward, and the, the main focus is on the character of God, who he is. And it's just this: I'm coming out of myself. I'm gonna forget about myself for a while and focus on your character, who you are. And so we've got praise psalms. We got uh, we got a few that are less prevalent in the book of Psalms. You've got with that that are there though. You got wisdom psalms like Psalm one and others you've got royal psalms that celebrate the king and those i can speak to in a, in a minute actually about why would they be in the book of psalms you've also got repentance psalms think about david in psalm 51 creating me a, me a clean heart oh god i think it is elohim and renew a right spirit within me cast me not away from your presence and it goes on and uh you know, cast me not away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me like you did from Saul. Mm-hmm. I've sinned grievously. Forgive me. I'm coming repentant and this modeling of repentance. So the book of Psalms, those are some of the anatomy of all the parts of the mm-hmm. soul, some of these things. And you've got this, um, I-, I mentioned Royal Psalms a minute ago. In a sense, is that even practical to have Royal Psalms in the book of Psalms? How is that practical for us today? Um, what are we going to say uh, about royal psalms? Well, first of all, recognize that in, a, in ancient Israel, as it went with the king, so it went with the people. And the king represented the people to God. And so when you're praying for your covenant head, as it were, and his prosperity, you're praying for God's blessing on the community as a whole. And when the covenant had sins, like when David sins, what happens to community? Like people, heads, heads literally roll. And so I, I'm quite thankful that my Savior, my Messiah is perfect. But also think of the Davidic covenant, that in 2 Samuel 7, there's this promise that there's always going to be a king on the throne of Israel. And by the time the book of Psalms was completed, like received its final shape, there's no king on the throne anymore. And we still got this promise that, you know, a king's going to come. And the, the, the royal psalms, in my view, are meant to be read messianically. They're meant to be read as anticipating Jesus. 
Hmm. We can look back as Christians and say they were pointing us to Jesus, um, but they were meant that way. And I'm going to read a quote again, Waltke's, Bruce Waltke, and uh, he says this, the concept of Messiah was also developed in the editing of the Psalter. Israel draped the magnificent royal Psalms as robes on each successive king. But generation after generation, the shoulders of the reigning monarch proved too narrow and the robes slipped off to be draped on his successor. I'm going to pause there and I'm going to, I'm going to explain that the royal Psalms idealized the king. And in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20, you've got, you've got this, here's the kind of king you should set over Israel. And then you get into the book of Samuel and Kings, and none of the kings fully match up. David's the high point, but we've already talked about Psalm 51 and Bathsheba. And none of these kings fully match up to this picture of the ideal king. But then you look at the Psalms, the royal Psalms, and they're all this idealized portrait of the king. So what Waltke is saying there is generation after generation, the royals, the Psalms were like royal robes put on every king, but his shoulders were too narrow. His righteousness didn't support it. So it slipped off waiting to be placed on his successor. And then I'll continue the quote now. Finally in the exile, Israel was left without a king and with a wardrobe of royal robes in their hymnody. On the basis of Yahweh's unconditional covenants to Abraham and David, the faithful know that Israel's history ends in triumph, not in tragedy. The prophets, as noted, envisioned a coming king who would fulfill the promise of these covenants. Haggai and Zechariah, who prophesied around 520 BC when the returnees had no king, fueled the prophetic expectation of a hoped-for king by applying it to Zerubbabel, son of David, and to Joshua, the high priest. When this hope fell through, and here's the key, Israel pinned their hope on a future Messiah. It was in that context when Israel had no king that the Psalter was edited with reference to the king. Accordingly, the editors of the Psalter must have resignified the Psalms from the historical king and draped them on the shoulders of the Messiah. Samuel Terrian, commenting on Psalm 21, agrees, quote, the theology of kingship and divine power had to be re-examined in the light of the historical events. Psalm 21 needed to be reinterpreted eschatologically according to the end times. The anointed one began to be viewed as the Messiah at the end of time. End quote from Terrian. Last little bit from Waltke. In short, in light of the exile and the loss of kingship, the editors, those who brought the book of Psalms together, colored the entire Psalter with a messianic hue. So there you have it. That is a great overview of the types of Psalms that we find as we go through this book of the Bible. You've mentioned a number of them. So let me summarize for my own sake here. You mentioned lament psalms, yeah. praise psalms, thanksgiving psalms, some wisdom, royal, repentant psalms. To me, I hear those. And when you said that umbrella term of the Psalter being one of praise, Israel's hymn book, those ring true. I mean, all of those, I think those are worshipful things, each and every one of them. I can... And maybe the one that's most surprising for us today is we can lament worshipfully. Yeah. So that can be a, a form of praise. And 
And, and that's one that we've talked about in this series uh, in the Book of Lamentations as well uh, that will come up. But but that is such a a lost consideration, I would say, today, don't you think? I totally agree. And I just think that if you look at a song like Matt Redman, Blessed Be Your Name, When I Walk Through the Wilderness, and, and he has like, whether I'm high or low, blessed be your name. And mm-hmm. But for a long time, that's the only one I could think of. But then there's that song by Matt Boswell and Matt Papa, Lord from Sorrows Deep I Call. Mm-hmm. And I, I posted that on Facebook, just we don't sing enough sad songs. I We think of worship today as the happy clappy trio at the front. And what Walter Brueggemann says about that, by the way, I like about a third of what Walter Brueggemann says and a third of it I hate and a third of it's pretty neutral. So I'm not advocating everything Brueggemann says, but he, he has an article called The Costly Loss of Lament in Worship. And he says that when people only ever hear happy praising in our songs from church and triumphant prayers from our pastor, what they implicitly learn is that we can only approach God when it is well with my soul. And actually, when a pastor in the way they pray or in the song leader in the, in the kinds of songs we sing, when they model, we can bring our tears to the Lord. First of all, they're in keeping with scripture and they're also just recognizing we we're in, this is the reality in a fallen world, man. Mm-hmm. You know, let's not be fake Christians that get up in the morning and say, my son died, praise the Lord. Yeah. Everything's, I, 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 no, my son died. I'm aching and I'm fighting and to, to, to believe in all these, you know, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so I would challenge worship leaders to write Psalms, songs that are lament appropriate for Sunday worship. Mm-hmm. Have you heard that song, Lord from Sorrows Deep I Call? I have, yeah. I love that song. It stands out as unique because it's so rare, yeah. right, today? Yeah, that's right. I wonder if another byproduct of that happy church service or, or constantly, unshakably happy yes. church service. We, we have victory in Jesus, man. Yes. We have eternal treasure in that's unshaken and there's a place for joy obviously and the psalter has that as well yeah we're just lamenting the lack of lamentation Um, that's right what i have found too as a pastor what it implicitly communicates to our people is that it's actually sinful to lament if we never do it corporately if it's never modeled that that's right i've had people come to me and say I don't know if I'm praying right. I, I feel like I'm praying too vulnerably. The Lord doesn't want to hear me cry out to him, ask him where I, where he is. But then you direct them to the psalm and say, well, you know, David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he had some pretty raw times with the Lord. And now I'm wondering if you can actually give us some help here too as well, because as we seek to lament and call upon God biblically, are there ways that we can err and we fall off into sin when we do that? And how do we avoid doing that? That's a really good question, Josiah. I'm just, there's so many different things that could be said, right? I think we could misinterpret the directness of the psalmist um, for a cheeky boldness, like I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And that's not it at all. There's no lack of respect in the psalmist towards God. And I think we could also misinterpret some of his bold demands 
as health, wealth, prosperity, or I deserve it. Look at the kinds of things he's asking for. Another thing we need to remember is most often it's the king praying. And yes, in a sense, David is every man. And I can read David's words and apply them fairly directly to myself. But we also need to have a filter that I'm not David. Mm. I'm not the king over God's people. I'm not the covenant head over God's people. Jesus is. And as it goes with me, it doesn't go with all of God's people. Mm-hmm. And so that needs to be kept in mind as we read these lament Psalms. But I would also suggest we can also be overly sanitized and err in that way as well. Mm-hmm. The last thing I'll say about this is we can forget to move beyond the lament and go where the psalmist takes us. And that is, here's who you are and celebrating the character of God and like come up and see the sunshine and here's who God is for me. And then anticipating my eternal standing in Christ is unshakable. Therefore I will praise you in the midst of this situation. Hmm. So those are some things that come to mind. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. And there's another type of Psalm that's sometimes pointed to. I want to talk about a little bit here. There's oftentimes called imprecatory Psalms. Yeah. I wonder if you can address that type of Psalm and then help us to figure out how we can put that into place and how we understand those today. As you explain what they are, I think our listeners will have the question, well, how can we reconcile that with the God we oftentimes sing about in corporate worship today? Yeah, sure. The imprecatory Psalms are troubling, right? Um, (laughs) And it's hard to sanitize Blessed is the one who, who smashes their baby's heads against a rock. Like that is against, it says the rock against the rock. And that's just pretty vivid. The first thing I'm going to say is with that example, the psalmist is basically, he's experienced exile. And in that Psalm, People have come into Jerusalem and they've torn the temple apart. And when you think about, when you, when you read of ancient war practices and the different peoples, it was brutal. It was brutal. Um, You know, rape and dismemberment and this kind of thing. And by saying blessed is the one who smashes their babies heads against a rock. they're, They're basically saying, may it be done to them as has been done to us. They've watched their own children's heads be bashed against rocks. Hmm. And by the way, it's the rock. I I think it's a reference to the temple, Hmm. the temple mount. And think of the humiliation of, you know, coming into their house and taking that baby. And I I don't want to get into vivid, but when they murdered that child, they did it against the rock on which the temple was built. And so the first thing I'll say about imprecatory Psalms is these people aren't struck in traffic. They're, they're more like, you know, people I know whose child has been murdered mm-hmm. and, and this kind of thing. So pretty horrible. I'm going to return to Bruce Waltke again. Um, I'm not like a Bruce Waltke only guy. Just, he happens to have another really helpful quote when he talks about imprecatory Psalms, because we have to think about them in context. Mm-hmm. 
And what Walke is going to suggest here is we need to think about the context of the psalm, who the psalmist was, what was going on in their life. They were under the old covenant, we're under the new, and they are part of Holy Scripture, but they're not appropriate for us to pray against our enemies today. That's what Walke's going to say. And he's, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll just quick run through it here. He said, these, peti- these petitions are by saints, especially the innocent suffering king who have suffered gross injustices. Few commentators have experienced the agony of utterly unprovoked naked aggression and gross exploitation. The petitioners are righteous and just. They ask for strict retribution. The petitioners are faithful. The pious recognize that vengeance is God's, not theirs. Mm. They trust God, not themselves, to avenge the gross injustices against them. The psalmist is not vindicative. There have been few men, says Derek Kidner, more capable of generosity under personal attack than David, as he proved by his attitudes towards Saul and Absalom, to say nothing of Shimei. End quote from that, but back to Walke. The wicked, by contrast, avenge themselves. Next, these prayers are ethical. That is, the petitioners ask God to to distinguish between right and wrong. They are also theocratic, looking for establishment of a kingdom of righteousness by the moral administrator of the universe. The earthly king asks no more of the heavenly king than the latter asks of him. Hmm. Next, these prayers are theocentric. They're they're God-centered, aiming to see God praised for manifesting his righteousness and justice in the eyes of all. Calvin wrote, it was a holy zeal for the divine glory, which impelled the psalmist to summon the wicked to God's judgment seat. Back to Waltke, these prayers are evangelistic, aiming for conversion of earth by letting all people see that the Lord is most high over all the earth. They are covenantal, a wrong against a saint is seen as a wrong against God. The prayers are oriental and full of figures, especially hyperbole. The prayers are political. If we may presume the enemy heard the prayer, he would be publicly exposed as one who opposed the kingdom of God. Moreover, the righteous identify with the psalmist and rally around him. Indeed, the enemy and potential evildoer may be instructed and converted through prayer. These prayers last are consistent with the central message of the Bible, thy kingdom come. The Lord's prayer entails that saints pray for the overthrow of Satan's kingdom. And here's Waltke's conclusion. Though theologically sound, these petitions for retribution are nevertheless inappropriate for the church in the present dispensation for the following reasons. First, ultimate justice occurs in the eschaton, in the end times, in Mm -hmm. the new heavens and new earth. Two, sin and sinner are now more distinctly differentiated, allowing the saint both to hate sin and love the sinner. Three, the saint's struggle is against spiritual powers of darkness. He conquers by turning the other cheek and by praying for the forgiveness of enemies. So the reason I read that long quote is I can't improve upon it. That's my position on imprecatory Psalms. Mm. 
I think it's really helpful to see all the in context stuff mm-hmm. and to say to suggest, okay, you see them about 35 times or so in the in the book of Psalms, you see these retribution prayers, mm-hmm. but maybe we're not going to pray it against the neighbor whose music is too loud, let alone the person that a more serious situation, right? Those interpretive rules are are very helpful as they are when we come to any passage of scripture. Sometimes we run into the the modern day, although I'm not sure it's only modern day. We run into the error of putting ourselves in every text of scripture. This was written to me yeah. rather than understanding that it probably was not written to me. Yeah. In fact, it definitely was not. And that it has to be a lens through which we read scripture. I'm wondering if we can take some of what Wolke said there and what you quoted to us and and think practically now. So I'm sitting at home in the morning. I open my Bible before I go to work, before I brush my teeth. I want to spend some time in the word. My Bible reading plan has me landing in Psalm 83. And I'm, I've heard what you've said. I want to read this properly. I don't want to misapply this to my life and pray it against my loud neighbor. But I come to a text that says, Oh my God, make them my enemies like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, like fire that burns the forest and like a flame that sets the mountain on fire. What do I do with that, Dr. Valencourt, to At that time, at that moment when yeah. I read that text, it's living and active. All scriptures, I've been told. Yeah. So what do I do with that? At that I, moment, I'll tell you what I do in the moment. I do two things. I, I direct it personally to Satan, hmm. um, the enemy. Uh, you're stronger than Satan, Lord. I'm not, hmm. and That's he is a, a roaring lion seeking to some for someone to devour. Protect your saints, and I pray for his overthrow. I long for that day when he'll be thrown into the the pit of fire. Hmm. So I direct it to him, to Satan, and I also. Um, pant for eternal justice that is sure to come mm. um thinking about thinking about the new heavens and new earth so those are the two areas that i go that's great it seems like so much of the psalms are anticipatory mm-hmm. as we yeah. praise the lord we ache for what has been promised to come yeah, yeah. amen well let's as we come to the end of our time i want to ask a couple more questions one coming to the present day so we have this song book of ancient Israel that they used yeah. to praise the Lord in all these different ways. It was their language praying back to God and God has, has preserved it for us. Mm-hmm. An incredible provision from him to us. How do you think we should be using Psalms today as Christians individually, but also Christians corporately? What role should they play in our lives today? Yeah, I think we should read the Psalms in the context of the New Testament and the fulfillment of of the old covenant in Jesus, in his cross and resurrection. So that's the first thing. And and that's one of the blessings of being at a good church is you learn to do that progressively. So as the pastor or preacher gets up and week by week, you're soaking in and getting an instinct for, okay, I want to be able to put this passage in the context of the whole Bible. And so that's something that comes through that and it comes through time as a Christian. So that's the first thing I would say. Having said that, and and that'll allow us to see, okay, those imprecatory Psalms, I'm going to wrestle with that. And maybe you're going to land where I've suggested or Waltke suggests we land, but that helps us. I don't want to say filter, but that helps us to apply with wisdom, right? So we're not just going to go one for one, you know, Lord, please kill my enemies. 
oh Lord, please kill my enemies. That's, that's not going to be what happens when we read it in the context. So those are some rules and it takes time. But having said that, the Psalms are this treasure that can shape the way we sing corporately, the way we pray corporately, and the theology that we believe. If the Psalms really is a little Bible, then it has a good summary of the totality of of what the scriptures teach. And I need to have my theology shaped by the book of the Psalms. So those are some things that come to mind initially as we, and I've already modeled, you know, the lament Psalms and following the structure of a lament in my own time of lament, you know, I've had seasons of lament and I've had seasons of loss, sorry, And when I read lament Psalms, when I'm most raw, a few things have been more encouraging for me because they don't leave me in the aching. They lead me to here's who God is for me. And and so there's that personal direct access. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is they point us to Jesus and we should learn to see to move from the every page of the book of Psalms to Jesus. And maybe it's a, a royal psalm that celebrates the king. Well, I praise you that you are that ultimate promised king to come. Maybe it's the king lamenting. And that leads us to think about Jesus as the prophet, priest, and king. Think of him in Gethsemane. and Or think of him, the son of God, who's eternal, preexistent, and... John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept, at, you know, at the, with Lazarus, uh, the death of Lazarus, and he experienced. He chose to enter a life that would experience loss, and I could go on, but they should point us to aspects of the gospel and the the cross and resurrection of Christ. So those are a bunch of things. Now, going out to apply that and actually running with it, that's why we have good churches. That's why we have Bible studies and that's why we have personal devotions, but not just personal devotions, other Christians in our lives, teachers in the church that we can progressively learn that more and more. That's great. This last question, I want to zoom all the way back out now and get a glimpse of the whole. We've been down in the weeds. I want to look at the forest now a little bit. It's a huge book of the Bible. Yeah. You said 150 Psalms all put together. Is there a way of outlining it so that it can help us avoid getting lost in it? And instead, can we, it can aid us in understanding the individual Psalms as we see how it's structured, we see the whole. I wonder if you could help us with that. Sure. Yeah. So in my own work in the Psalms, I did, I, I wrote my dissertation on the book of Psalms and I've done some other work. I teach on the Psalms. I've done some writing on the Psalms and I'm not the first to say this initial thing I'll say, if I am, you should probably not have me on your podcast because, you know, if something's completely new and no one's discovered for 2000 years until me, well, I think that's a bit of a problem. Augustine said, the arrangement of the Psalms, which seems to me to contain a secret of great mystery has not yet been revealed to me. And what he was saying there is, okay, we've got these individual poems. We've got 150 of them. There was an original poet, 73 of them are by David. 
we got Asaph, we got Solomon a couple of times, we got different people. And that original poet had a rig- a, an original life situation in which he wrote, but they were also written with in mind, or at least recognized to be appropriate for other situations and brought into the book of Psalms. But there's evidence, according to Augustine, that there's something to the arrangement. That it's not just as though this is a ragbag of, okay, here's blob of Psalms. I just grab this one, this one, and it just happens to be thrown together. But no, you can actually trace. And the way the Hebrew mind worked, uh, they thought in terms of themes. And if one Psalm ended with a theme and another one begins with that theme, and or you can see broad themes emerging in groups of Psalms, And a lot of good work over the centuries of the Christian church has been done in this. And you can see in different figures from church history where they're saying that um, the book of Psalms is not put together in a hodgepodge fashion. So, and and you see with um, Dalich's commentary on the Psalms, he's looking at connections between Psalms. James Hamilton from Southern Seminary in Louisville, his Um, commentary on the Psalms is coming out soon. It may be out by now, I'm not sure, but with Lexham Press, and he's looking at the arrangement of the Psalms. He's reading the Psalms, not just in the context of the poet's life, but in the context of the flow of the book. And so the idea here is that the Psalms that were written for whatever life situation are now reappropriated and brought into the context of a book of Psalms. And so the broad narrative, in my view, of the book of Psalms, you see evidence that Psalms 1 and 2 are intentionally placed together as an introduction to the book of Psalms. I might call it a gateway to the book of Psalms. And the theme in Psalm 1 is the word of God. And the theme in Psalm 2 is the king as the son of God. And if you want to think about the Psalms as a book of praises, the entry into the life of praise is the word of God and the son of God, ultimately pointing to the Messiah. And so that's the entry way into. Then when you look at the structure of the book of Psalms, you see that there's five books. And in our English Bibles, we got book one, book two, and all those names, but that's not in the Hebrew. But you, you'll notice that if you go to book two, the, the word book two in Psalm uh, 42, the very last line of Psalm 41 is a doxology. Blessed be Yahweh, and some of them say amen and amen. And four times, you know, these different times, four times in the book of Psalms, you've got these doxologies at the end of book one, the end of book two, three, four, and then in book five, it ends with five psalms of doxology. So you can see the symmetry. You've got one line of doxology at the end of each book, except for book five, which has five entire psalms. And so there's this intentional structure to the book of Psalms. And so that's another signal that the Psalms, there's actually clusters. And when you get looking at the different books, you can see overriding themes in the clusters of Psalms. So I'd suggest to you that books one and two, Psalms one to 72, the the theme that I go with would be the tears of David as he reigns in tension the tears of David as he reigns in tension. 
huge concentration of lament psalms, huge concentration of David psalms, and he's reigning in tension in books one and two. Next, in book three, you've got this um, theme of exile and loss of kingship, Psalms 73 to 89. And some of the poems, some of the Psalms would have been written for the occasion of the exile in light of it. Some of them would have been written for other life situations way before the exile. I believe there's a David Psalm in there. He, he lived way before the exile. But you've got these you've got this dominant note of exile and loss of kingship and older Psalms reappropriated for this new situation of exile and loss of kingship. And uh, book four is Psalm 90 to 106. And in this, in this book, I, I title kind of, oh, by the way, book three ends with Psalm 88, the darkest Psalm, darkest, darkness is my closest friend. And then Psalm 89, the, the crown of David is in the dust. You know, where is your chesed from old? Then book four begins, Psalm 90 to 106. And the title I would give to this section is Yahweh reigns even when David does not. Hmm. If the book three ends with exile and loss of kingship, the crown of David in the dust, here you've got a, um, I could say lots about book four, but we're getting on in time. I'll just summarize and say, David, the Davidic king has been overthrown, but you've got this concentration of Yahweh reigns psalms. So the, this reminder that um, Yahweh reigns even when David does not. Book four ends with Psalm 106 and this cry from the exiles for restoration Book five begins in 107, celebrating you brought us back from our distress. We were in, you know, the shores of the lake and you, 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 you drew us back. And, and, and there's, this, there's this celebration of what, what Yahweh has done in, in returning from exile. And Psalms 107 to 150, I would give the heading, the return of a new and better David the return of a new and better David. And a major theme in Psalms 107 to 150 is not only does David reappear, and yes, they were likely just Psalms written by David in his lifetime. And they're reappropriated in the context and the flow of the Psalms for a new and better David to come. But it's not just that. It's also Psalm 110 is a, pro a prophetic word of David. And in Psalm 110, David is a prophet speaking of the one to come, his Lord, he calls him. And the very specific wording of Psalm 110 verse 1 is, Neum Yahweh Ladoni in Hebrew, which is different from Yahweh says to my Lord. All our English translations translate it that way following the King James, but actually Neum Yahweh is a phrase used 268 times in the prophets. Neum is a noun that means prophetic declaration. And in the prophets, the, the old King James translated that phrase, thus saith the Lord. And so by starting Psalm 110.1 with Neum Yahweh, 
David is signaling that this is an, a prophetic utterance of Yahweh to my Lord, my David's Lord, and I'm the prophet reporting it. So it's intentionally a prophetic word, and it's, it's about this royal Messiah figure who reigns on the right hand of Yahweh on the throne of the cosmos, and who's also a priest in the manner of Melchizedek. So he's a prophet and a king, a priest and a king. And you got Psalms like 118 that there's no superscription. So we don't know the author, but there's this king leading this victory procession from the battlefield and which was the job of the king in antiquity, by the way. And then he leads this victory procession through the gates of the city, through the gates of the temple, where he leads a responsive psalm of thanksgiving for deliverance. And in that psalm of thanksgiving, he quotes Moses in Exodus 15, the song, song of the sea. And I could go on. I wrote my dissertation on Psalm 110 and 118. So, but there's these themes of end time deliverance through a Messiah figure who's going to be a prophet, priest, and king. And that emerges in book five. So that's kind of a broad strokes how I outline the book of Psalms. Well, that is helpful. And you have given us a lot to think about when it comes to this book of Psalms. Many people listening maybe didn't know all that was going on in this book. Uh, it's a big book, but there's a lot going on there. You've shown us the depth of that book. I think the riches are very clearly on your heart as you dive into the Psalms. The honesty of the psalmists, mm -hmm. I think it gives us license. It gives us permission. It gives us the liberty to be real with God and to cry out to God, no matter what's going on in our lives, the hurt and the success, the thanksgiving everything that, that we can call out to God and certainly the anticipation Amen. that we are anticipating something better, a, a better king. Uh, we are anticipating a new heavens and new earth, justice, uh, where righteousness reigns. Uh, there are certainly things to, uh, to celebrate and to use oftentimes. I love what you said near the beginning, how although you admitted you did it perhaps erroneously when you whitewashed the prayers, but when you took the Psalms and prayed them back to God, yeah. What a great practice that is to take the words of God. And this is a book of the Bible that was written to God, inspired by God, and they're given to us, preserved for us, that we can take these words and pray them back to God. If you want to learn how to pray, I mean, there's no greater place to do that than the prayer book of the Bible itself. Amen. Uh, thank you so much for giving us the time, Dr. Valencourt. I very appreciate it. And no doubt it was very, very helpful for many people listening. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, again, an honor to be, an honor to be here, man. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us this week. For more information about Oak Ridge Bible Chapel, the ministries of the church, or for more resources like this one, please visit oakridgebiblechapel.org. And make sure to join us next week as together we make our way through the Bible cover to cover.